According to data from Statista.com, oil and gas companies spent $76 million lobbying our government in 2020. According to Climate Change Realty, if just three out of every 1,000 home buyers in America use Climate Change Realty to find their real estate agent, we could have donated more than $90 million to Citizens Climate Lobby so that they could lobby for nonpartisan climate policy. Welcome to the podcast. Salvador, great to meet you, man. Thanks so much for taking some time to come on the show. It really means the world to me. Thank you for inviting me. I look forward to sharing with you what we're working on, uh, on, on at Ocean Based Climate Solutions. Yeah, you're welcome, man. What you're working on is really cool. You're hitting the, what are they, like the five pillars. There's like ocean upwelling and downwelling, direct air capture, mineralization, reforestation. I don't know. I'm just naming like the different ways to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. But what you're doing is really cool. And I don't know anyone else who's doing it. So I'm really excited to dive into this with you. But before that, I always love to get a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Sure. So... Uh, my name is Salvador Garcia. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer for Ocean-Based Climate Solutions. Uh, I, uh, after college, I joined the Peace Corps. This was back in 2008. Um, and I was in the Small Business Development Program. I was assigned to the Northern and Southern Andes of Peru to give, uh, to work with small and medium-sized businesses. I ended up falling in love and staying in the country a lot longer. Um, and had a successful career there in real estate. But I, in 2018, my daughter was born, Luana, and it just changed you know, my way of thinking. I decided I did not want to raise her in Peru. I was thinking about moving back to the States. So I started looking at what I would be doing in the States, you know, using my career and, and my background. And it was around that same time that Greta Thunberg was drawing a lot of attention to climate. And I had always grown up learning about global warming. I knew it was a thing, but I didn't realize how dire of a situation uh, we were putting ourselves in. So I started, somehow found myself in this niche of carbon removal. And I was really inspired by uh, you know, what scientists uh, were working on with direct air capture even ways of reforestation, I found it very amazing. But I realized pretty quickly that uh, there wasn't enough land, energy, or water uh, you know, on land to be able to scale reforestation and direct air capture uh, projects up to avoid the 1.5 or even 2 degrees C warming by the end of the century. So I started looking at the oceans. And um, I discovered kelp can double in mass every 12 to 13 days, which I thought was pretty cool. But then I discovered phytoplankton could double in mass every 24 hours. <laughs> I need to know what projects or what people are working on on this. So I learned about ocean iron fertilization, thought that was cool. But then I discovered this guy out in a landlocked state, Philip Kissel, working on a wave-powered pump that that was designed to bring nutrients from the deep ocean to the surface and to feed phytoplankton to feed, uh, so that these phytoplankton would grow. And I thought that was very interesting. I reached out to him in 2019 and it was before the pandemic. I, I tried raising money for him uh, in Lima where I was at uh, looking to see if I could bring uh, investors on board, but uh, Limeños or Peruvians are very conservative when it comes to uh, sustainability invest investments. 
Uh, but we stayed in touch and I did some, uh, some work on, uh, for marketing for him. But uh, the pandemic hit and things kind of got stalled. It slowed down. But around uh, early 2021, Elon Musk had announced the XPRIZE carbon removal. And I got back in touch with Phil. Like, Phil, your project needs to be in this. Let's do this. And like, I got him to uh, record this video. We didn't know what the XPRIZE was at the time. I didn't do any research. I just knew that Elon was going to be donating $100 million for uh, carbon removal projects. So we spammed Elon Musk's account with this like video about what we're working on. And uh, I think Phil liked the effort. It wasn't the best video. It was actually pretty terrible, but uh, <laughs> uh, he uh, offered me a job like a month later and I've been on the team ever since. So now I find myself in Albuquerque uh, after a year of raising funds. Uh, and you know, getting in touch with large corporations, letting them know what we're working on, how we would like to work with them. Um, I'm helping my team to build these ocean nutrient pumps. And uh, I do have a presentation that I could give that uh, will at least give the visual, uh, you know, followers, your followers, um, an idea of what, of how it works. And I could do my best to describe it for uh, the uh, audio only listeners. Cool. So let's definitely do that. But but before we do, um, did you say that you went to school for, was it business or what was it? Uh, so I um, actually, so I graduated from high school in 2000 and I wanted to be a cardiologist, but uh, I got scared of, uh, of, of seeing the cadavers in the anatomy class. And I switched majors twice. I went to art, but I didn't really get a lot of family support. And then I switched to biology, but that's another story of the long story. I eventually <laughs> found myself uh, back in Northern California studying at what is now a Cal Poly uh, Humboldt mm -hmm. um, in Arcata, California. And I got a degree uh, in business uh, with an emphasis in marketing. And if you happen to hear any whining in the background, that's the Irish wolfhound singing. I don't know well, if you can hear it, but. Well, we know that the dogs sing when there's a lot of potential for carbon drawdown. They get very excited about it, you know? I think that's what it is. He's listening in on uh, our conversation. And, he, super and he's like, phytoplankton <laughs> can grow in 24 hours to twice the size. Arr! But um, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering what, um, wh why did you decide to join the Peace Corps after you graduated from college? Where does that desire come from? Well, that came from uh, Robert Chapman my high school teacher in Eureka, California. He was, um, he taught uh, English writing seminar, or I, he tried to anyways. Uh, most of the class was him just talking about his experience in Nepal as a Peace Corps volunteer. And I was a poor kid, you know, with just thinking about, at that time, thinking about being a doctor, but also thinking about being, uh, about adventuring. I'd never traveled my entire life, really. Um, and I thought, the Peace Corps would be a good place to go after college, whatever I graduate in. So six months before uh, my graduation date, I applied to the Peace Corps and I was accepted pretty quickly. And I had my choice of different countries. I thought I was going to end up in Guatemala, but they ended up assigning me to Peru. And uh, yeah, that's where I ended up at. 
Yeah. Well, I just love that story of you like struggling to figure out what you want to do and then going on an adventure and then falling in love. And then you said that you got into real estate. So you found a way to kind of build a firm financial foundation. And once you kind of that family came together, now you're like, uh oh, let's figure out how to leave this place better than when I found it because now I got a family to take care of, which brings us mm-hmm. to today. So yeah, I mean, we can go ahead. Let's let's talk about the mission of your company, Ocean Based Climate Solutions, and and what exactly y'all are doing. If you want to talk about that or, or pull up the presentation, I'll kind of leave that up to you. Sure, I think maybe it would be great to uh, present to you what we're uh, working on. Totally. Here, I'm going to share my screen. Jump over here. So yeah, um, what we're working on right now is helping um, uh, corporations reach net zero. Uh, they are by by and large the, the largest polluters, and we know that um, conventional uh, mitigation techniques like solar uh, energy saving light bulbs and wind energy is not going to be enough really to reduce the amount of CO2 we need in order to avoid uh, 1.5 degrees C warming. So negative emissions technologies are absolutely uh, need to be considered. Um, and it turns out corporations, they want to be net zero and they're seeking actively carbon dioxide removal solutions with a preference for engineered solutions. They want durable uh, sequestration. So long-term, they're lo- also looking for scalable solutions. Um, they also want low risk of reversal. And that just means they don't want you know their reforestation projects going up in flames. And they're not, of course, experts in climate. So um, anything that is presented to them must pass muster of their uh, cl- uh, consulting climate scientists. And for your visual um, uh, listeners, they'll be able to see that uh, there's direct air, uh, the, the little image I have here of different negative emissions technologies. In land-based, you see direct air capture, uh, bioenergy capture and storage, uh, afforestation, biochar, enhanced uh, weathering. There's a whole lot of other options and ours is also on the list and it's known as artificial upwelling and that's what i'm going to talk about today uh, but you know why artificial upwelling it, well and this is the right time actually to start thinking about ocean solutions land-based carbon dioxide removal is not enough reforestation projects are going up in flame um, and more recently the national <laughs> yeah. academies of science engineering and medicine cited our company and solution as a path forward uh, in their December 2021 report for ocean-based carbon dioxide removal. And what we do is we uh, build and deploy ocean nutrient pumps, also called artificial upwelling pumps. It's an ocean-based CDR, carbon dioxide removal. It's an engineered slash nature-based solution. It operates entirely on wave power. And its sole function, Ethan, is to deliver nutrients from the deep ocean to phytoplankton. Uh, And it's from a depth of 500 meters, so half a kilometer. The durability, which I will talk about more uh, ahead, could be between 100 to 1,000 plus years. And it's scalable. If you think about it, um, you know, the earth is 71% ocean. That's the surface. 65% of earth's surface is ocean desert. It's void of life. It's It's a blue ocean. And this is a perfect area for our technology um, because at the surface, there's no nutrients. It's all in the deep ocean. And I'll get to that in a moment. Um, but there's no, no land, water, or electricity is required except for when they're being built uh, while our pumps are operating. 
um, and there's no risk of reversal. So not a lot of people know this about the ocean, uh, but the deeper you go, the higher the concentrations of nutrients. Uh, for your audio listeners on my screen, I have uh, diagrams of phosphate, uh, nitrate, and silicate. And um, on the left, there it shows the depth. And on the right, um, it shows the uh, increasing concentrations of nutrients. And the deeper in the ocean you go, the higher the concentrations of these vital nutrients that help grow phytoplankton. Now, you know, to simplify it, the ocean is kind of like oil and water when you get out to the deep ocean in terms of mixing. The top layer is heated, it's less dense, versus the deep ocean, it's colder and more dense. So it doesn't really mix, unless, of course, there's a passing whale that will swim up and down the water column and help mix these oceans, fish as well, or even storms that are out in these areas. Um, but after 200 years of whaling, there's not a there's not a lot of waste. Like 90% have been killed off. We are overfishing our oceans. So there's just less uh, life in this area to help naturally mix uh, these waters. And what we do is we uh, draw up from a depth of 500 meters nutrients, bring it to the surface. And as, it, as Earth has been doing for the past 2.6 billion years, immediately begins uh, growing phytoplankton when we bring up these nutrients to the surface. Um, phytoplankton are responsible for 80 to, eight, uh, to 50 to 80% of the oxygen that we breathe here on Earth. So how do these nutrient, uh, ocean nutrient pumps work? Well, first we must deploy them uh, in nutrient depleted zones. So this is far offshore and away from coral reefs uh, and to deliver those nutrients from the deep ocean to the surface. And the moment these nutrients hit the surface, they immediately begin uh, growing phytoplankton. Uh, phytoplankton can double in mass every 24 hours. Uh, they live for about 48 hours before they uh, sink and die. Um, or prior to that, a lot of them are just uh, eaten by zooplankton and fish that are also in the surface, um, and they are then pooped out. So that is, so when it's sinking, that is a form of uh, carbon sequestration, uh, particulate organic matter. It's a type of uh, marine snow. Marine snow is actually uh, dead phytoplankton and fish, or bits of detritus, um, sinking to the deep ocean. Ours is a is a type of that. And what we do is we uh, use a sophisticated ocean instrument that's tethered to the bottom of our ocean nutrient pump to uh, measure the sinking rate and depth of the phytoplankton, so we can then determine how long it has been sequestered. So. Um, what we what you see on the screen now, and I'll do my best to describe it for your audio listeners, is um, what scientists know about uh, the duration of uh, the um, ocean carbon pump or the biological carbon pump in the ocean. And that is when phytoplankton is detected sinking at more than 300 meters depth, you can estimate or is currently estimated at least 100 years of sequestration. If you could detect the coin more than a thousand years depth, then uh, I'm sorry, a thousand meters, you then get uh, potentially a thousand years or more of uh, the durability on the sequestration. Um, and so, in in this sense, our technology is a game changer. That dead phytoplankton and fish, uh, you know, ultimately and over time sink to the sea floor. Actually, the majority of Earth's CO2 is held in limestone, deposited on the sea floor. 
And the White Cliffs of Dover are an example of that. It's uh, millions of years uh, and billions of coccolithophore shells uh, just kind of peeking out at us from above the sea. So our business model at the moment is to sell pumps, currently with inflation prices and with a minimum of 20 pump deployments. Uh, we're selling the first 250 tons at $850 each, and then every ton after at $25. So this is for every pump, uh, we sell the first 250 tons at $850 each. Now, why do we do that? Because we need to build and deploy these pumps. Um, and then once they're out uh, deployed in the ocean, there's virtually no cost or the only cost that we experience is the iridium cost, the remote satellite uplinking of the data. Uh, the pumps are fitted with all sorts of sensors so we know the health of the pump. And then the Argo, it's one tethered for every uh, 10 pumps, um, also uplinks data uh, that helps us uh, determine how much CO2 is sinking. And when you compare us to uh, other uh, negative emissions technologies, artificial uploading is very compelling. Um, first off, it's scalable. Like I said, we have 65% of Earth's surface where we could essentially scale, although we wouldn't need that that much uh, to help. Uh, it's affordable. Um, its permanence is 100 to 1,000 plus years. And the fit, the, the co-benefits are fish in the ocean uh, ecosystem. Few people know this, Ethan, but a blue ocean, is a dead ocean. There's nothing living in a blue ocean. Um, when the water is green, it's it's got life and it's got phytoplankton. What we're essentially doing is greening uh, the ocean deserts uh, with our pumps. And one of the previous, like maybe it was the previous uh, slide, was kind of an exaggeration for your video uh, viewers. What you're looking at is uh, there's this, the Earth, and I I have um, the North Pacific subtropical gyre, basically the the North Pacific Ocean on screen and I had this green ring. This green ring um, is kind of an exaggerated view of, you know, if we had millions of our pumps deployed in the ocean. Essentially what we wanna do is we want to empower Earth to heal itself using its own wave energy and use a process that, that it has been using for many, many years. And if you compare what we do uh, with reforestation or trees, there's just no contest. Phytoplankton are the Lamborghinis of nature-based solutions. Um, on my screen, I'm showing a graph that shows how much CO2 is sequestered by an acre of 50-year-old uh, trees over time versus phytoplankton. And phytoplankton is just the volume is uh, of CO2 absorption and sequestration is it's more vastly than 10X. superior. More than 10x. Yeah. The trees. Yeah. So our team is led by Philip Kissel, uh, our CEO. He was inspired by Hurricane Katrina to um, build these pumps. It was His idea was to uh, cool the upper ocean of the Gulf of Mexico to mitigate, to uh, lower the intensity of hurricanes. Um, but he discovered along the way that what he was also doing was artificial upwelling. And uh, he couldn't find a market for the upwelling for just uh, cooling the ocean, the, the surface of the ocean. Um, but since 2005, he's been working really hard to uh, to um, develop this technology. And Phil Fulham is our chief engineer. Um, they're both based in in New Mexico. I know a landlocked state. It's nowhere near the ocean, but.
but uh, the, the challenge really with ocean nutrient pumps and artificial upwelling is the engineering. And this year we are doing some pretty amazing tests. Um, again, for your video viewers, they'll be able to see what the pump looks like. I do, if you guys are interested, you can visit our website at ocean-base.com. D-A-S-E-D. I'll link it in the description. And, but uh, yeah, there. what we're looking at here is just the configuration of the pump. And uh, on this other slide that I just switched to, you see um, the pump, the way uh, it's designed. And the tube here is not to scale, but the tube would be 500 meters in depth. And the way it works is when the buoy falls on a wave, the bottom weight valves open, allowing that deep ocean water to rush in. Um, when the buoy rises on the wave, it closes the valves at the bottom and the water rushes up the outlet that you see here at the top. So I've been in a metal shop in Albuquerque, New Mexico for about a month. I've come from Lima to uh, help them build uh, the pump. I'm not a factory type person. Like I've been lifting, <laughs> I've been helping like cut these things. It's been a really uh, enriching experience uh, to work uh, in the metal shop. And we have a textile shop in Santa Fe where we are uh, stitching and rolling the tube. Um, and we're gonna be doing trials this year. So we're doing an engineering trial in April off of Fort Wynamy, about 40 nautical miles west. Uh, there, it's just a 100 meter tube that we're gonna be uh, deploying. It's purely engineering. It's gonna be completely fitted with uh, the ocean instrumentation and the Argo. And this is all in preparation for uh, tests that we're doing out in the Canary Islands this summer. We're gonna be doing a six month trial, uh, deploying the pumps in uh, the eddies, the anticyclonic eddies that naturally form uh, south of the Canary Islands. Um, that's gonna be led by Dr. Ulf Rivasel. He's uh, a, one of the foremost experts in artificial upwelling in the world. Um, and uh, it's in conjunction with GEOMAR, which is the German Oceanographic Research Institution in Kiel, Germany, uh, with, I'm forgetting the name of it, but the Oceanographic Spanish Research, uh, Ocean Research Institution in Las Palmas, Gran Canaria. We're gonna be on the Sarmiento de Gamboa. It's an ocean research vessel. There's gonna be gliders, sediment traps, BGC Argos, plus the research vessel. We're gonna get, uh, we hope, lots of great data out of this. and. Yeah, that's basically what we're working on. Uh, and in terms of uh, where we're at with, um, you know, carbon credits or carbon crediting, we're currently working with Vera under their Seascape Carbon Initiative. Uh, it's in progress. So we expect to have um, the methodology approved within 12 to 15 months. So we're currently selling pre-certified credits via the pump. Uh, so each year a pump can, we estimate currently that a pump can sequester about 250 tons of CO2 per year, uh, although some scientists that we've spoken to um, internally have said it could be 30%, we may be underestimating by about 30%, and that's just based on the upwelling volume that our pumps are designed to, to do. So, uh, and that's where the, the idea of being able to recover up from costs in the first year of uh, deployment. So yeah, that's, uh, that's the presentation essentially. Uh, happy to take your questions or expand on, on what I've just shared. And time.
<laughs> you're, Salvador, you're bringing me back to a senior year of college, like entrepreneurship pitch day class. I, I really appreciate seeing that though, because it's really, really cool. And instead of just diving into questions, what I'll I'll, tr- I'll do is kind of explain the way I understand what you just said. And then and you can kind of correct me and see if I'm understanding it right to make it very simple. Sure. You guys sure. have a giant pump that takes nutrients from the bottom of the ocean that's lying dormant and brings it up to the surface. And when you do that, it feeds phytoplankton, which are then fed also by the sun, which makes them grow bigger, which draws down carbon, which makes the phytoplankton sink down to the bottom of the ocean again and sequesters that carbon. And what's really cool about what you're talking about is that it's completely powered by the seawater. You install the pump, and then you're done. You don't need to power it with oil. You don't need to power it with solar power. It moves with the ocean currents. And if I'm not mistaken, you said you're estimating that once you install a pump, it will last between a hundred to a thousand years in the ocean. Uh, let me. Okay, so a couple corrections. Uh, it's operated by wave power, not by the, the, the. It's in the sea or in the ocean, but it really depends on the wave power, the height. Um, the durability of the carbon sequester could be between 100 to 1,000 plus years. The pumps, we estimate that the current pumps that we're testing uh, now could last up to 80 years. Um, they're really over-engineered. Just to give you an idea of the size of the buoy, it's about the size of a small pickup truck. Um, the All in all, the pump with the bottom weight valve uh, weighs about 7,500 pounds. I think that's close to three tons or near there. Uh, the bottom weight valve is what helps keep, uh, keep it vertical or keeps it vertical. Um, and yes, the function of the pump is to use the wave energy to uh, open and close the valve that is 500 meters uh, deep. And when the water reaches the surface, you're right, it immediately triggers ocean photosynthesis. You're right, you, it triggers the growth of phytoplankton that in photosynthesis, we all learned in junior high school in the States anyhow was, you know, you need sunlight, you need water, you need uh, nutrients and you need CO2. And the byproduct is ultimately oxygen and phytoplankton produce 50 to 80% of the oxygen that we breathe um, on earth. It's a pretty important uh, aspect of you know, where, uh, of what we're doing. Another thing is, you know, I mentioned that 71% of Earth is ocean surface, 65% of where we're deploying is, um, six, six is ocean desert, which is perfect for our location. You know, we don't live on a green or brown planet. We live on a blue planet. And it led me to believe pretty early on when I was choosing where I would want to help that, you know, if, if we're to win the war on climate or lose it, it's going to be in our oceans, right? It's it's such a big part of uh, of Earth. It's it is Earth. We, we so that's why I'm happy to be here and happy to be um, advancing this technology. This year we have um, tests, um, and I'll be you know out in Los Angeles. I'll be out in the Canary Islands. I'll be in Los Angeles like late April. So if anybody listening. Uh, wants to meet up, they could message me and I'll be in uh, the Canary Islands in uh, late July. So, yeah. Well, we're happy to have you doing it, man. I'm, I love the enthusiasm and um, I love how you just dove into this project because you see the potential to, uh, of course, there's a, a, a nice um, 
capitalistic benefit, you know, there's huge, there could be a potential huge market for this, but also it's really not only going to help draw down carbon, but can really um, bring more life back into the ocean. Um, so could you explain a bit why the, the ocean desert is the perfect place to deploy these? Is that because it's going to re ocean forest those areas potentially, or is that not right? So the technology here is designed to bring nutrients um, and uh, there's a study that we have on our website uh, by Dave Carl and Ricardo Latelier done in, I think, 2008. Um, and what they discovered off the coast of Hawaii was, you know, when they upwelled artificially water from depths of below 300 meters, they were able to create multiple blooms of phytoplankton. So that was that. And they found also the deeper you go, the higher the concentration of nutrients, just like your video viewers will be able to see uh, in the presentation that I gave. The, but economically, we found that it made more sense to go as deep as 500 meters because it, it just gets much more expensive um, to build and deploy these pumps. But we, um, it, based on the upwelling volume and the concentration of nutrients of phosphate, nitrate, silicate and other uh, nutrients in the water, those ratios, uh, we would expect an overall sequestration of about 250 tons of CO2 per year uh, from one pump. So, and it's modular. If we have, you know, one pump that's sequestering 250 tons of CO2, if you have two, it's 500. If we deploy 16, it's equal to about the amount of carbon that the orca plant in uh, Iceland is um, capturing and storing. Um, 4,000 of these would be a megaton. 4 million of these would be a gigaton. Or a megaton is 1 million tons of CO2. A gigaton is 1 billion tons of CO2. It's really hard to uh, kind of visualize that. But you know, uh, I believe by 2050, the goal is to be able to pull between 20 to 30 ton, uh, gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere. And there's a lot of companies right now working on it. And it's going to really take a collective effort with all these approaches. Um, I just happened, you know, when I was in high school, I was a, a National Science Bowl competitor. And I was in the, the biology, geology, chemistry questions in that competition. If you're not familiar, it's, it's the it's a, it's a science competition sponsored by the U.S. Department of Energy. Anyhow, our high school, I was on the team that won and we got to compete in the nationals where we met some really smart kids that kicked our butt. But uh, it was that science background uh, of mine helped me decide to want to go towards the ocean. Um, and, you know, it, I, I researched this for about a, about a month before uh, deciding to start looking at ocean solutions and just found this particular project super inspiring and I'm here to see it through. And you're going to do it, man. Um, like you said, and we need everyone. Um, but this is a very, very promising, um, and I want to say event or not even a technology, whatever you want to call it, a movement forward. Um, and you said that your business model is to sell pumps, but then you also put up a price per ton. Can you kind of explain exactly how that would work and who would want to buy these pumps? Yes, so our business model is to focus currently on corporations. Um, although I've been exploring potential retail versions of this, but corporate corporations are the companies that 
every year they release sustainability reports and they report on their scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. Uh, scope, uh, these emissions ultimately are, uh, the sum total of them are their carbon footprint. And what they're looking to do is invest in projects to get to net zero, because they're buying large, the largest polluters, your Nikes, uh, your Microsoft, your, even your Goldman Sachs. Um, you know, their efforts, their being in business is, you know, causing pollution in the atmosphere. So they should be the ones that ultimately fit the, uh, put the bill for uh, getting down to net zero. So the idea here is each pump uh, has a cost for deployment. Um, you know, each pump comes currently to a little over $100,000 and each uh, biogeochemical Argo or Argo fitted with a ocean thermal energy conversion battery which just charges it while it goes up and down comes to about $150,000. I mean, the, 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 the instrument used for measuring the amount of CO2 removed is valued more than my house in, in Lima. Um, it's just expensive. So the deployment, the building and deployment costs uh, must be recovered. So any engineered solution must be recovered. And we just divided it by about $850 and that would be enough to uh, recover the initial deployment um, and building costs in the first year. And then um, there's an ongoing monitoring fee. We must be monitoring these 24-7, uh, 365, uh, the health of the pump and the in reporting on the carbon sequestration. So, and that's what ultimately the uh, companies want. The the benefit of the pumps being deployed in the ocean is ultimately the, the sea, and that is uh, more phytoplankton just means more life, uh, hopefully much more fish. We'll be getting some more qualitative data uh, once the pumps are deployed in the Canary Islands to see how it interacts with uh, local aquatic life, marine life. Um, but by and large, um, we believe that it's going to be very beneficial for the oceans. I have no doubt. So the corporations would be buying this at, as a way to offset their carbon footprints. So it's going to specifically be sold on the voluntary carbon market. Is that right? Um, so on the voluntary carbon, yes. Uh, in a way, yes. Um, what we're focusing on right now is uh, the science and engineering. But there are corporations, I won't name which ones, but sure. big ones, people who are already making purchases in carbon removal. Uh, that are interested in buying from us. It's just a matter of, will the pump operate for a long period of time? They want a little more science, scientific data. And that's why we're really thankful for um, the folks uh, that are going to be studying our pump uh, this summer. So pretty excited about that. The idea here is, you know, one person described it as, so I could buy a pump and it'll create my carbon credits, right? 250 per year every year for up to perhaps up to 80 years with routine maintenance. That sounds like a good deal. And I'll be helping the ocean ecosystem. Those are the thoughts that they, you know, okay, I'm interested, but I want to see more scientific data. So a lot of carbon removal projects, not just ours are currently in this stage where, you know, they're testing, they want to prove that, you know, the overall life cycle analysis of the pumps uh, is actually removing uh, net CO2 that you're not just uh, claiming. So 
Um, what's great about this is that the data that we will provide will be made available to the public. We won't be able, we're gonna be transparent with the data that we're uh, providing. The Argo data, for example, that is immediately public. Um, those are sent to the servers in France and in Seattle, um, quality controlled and then made avail uh, available publicly. So yeah, um, that's, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, no, you did. That, no, that makes sense. So the, so, but these corporations also need to decarbonize their activity. Um, and then there's outlying um, industries like aviation or uh, shipping that makes it really, really difficult to do that. But someone like a JP Morgan or a, a finance or Goldman Sachs, they should really be decarbonizing. This is a great holdover. Um, don't you think, I don't want to put my opinion into it. Do you think that it's enough for these companies to just purchase enough to get them to net zero? Don't you think that we, you, you know that we need to draw down more carbon because we're not decarbonizing fast enough? Do you think any of them would be interested in going further than net zero? Like, you know? There are some companies. Microsoft, I believe, has a goal by 2030 to re remove all of its CO2 since Bill Gates was working actually out here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, working on Microsoft. Um, they want to go all the way back. Yes, that's kind of the idea with uh, carbon removal technologies. I do right. think, though, we're going to need the help of, um, you know, solar, you know, solar, wind, and light saving, uh, I'm sorry, energy saving light bulbs. Those are all going to be part of the collective effort of um, trying to get to net zero uh, by 2050, which is the big number that a lot of people are using. Now, some, some corporations are pushing it to 26 year 2070. Because it's good, it's a really daunting task. Um, I think what most carbon removal technologies, how they can help, uh, like ours, is to help zero out those difficult scope three emissions. Scope three emissions are the emissions that are kind of the residual, or it's emissions that is done outside of the company. So uh, an example of that is uh, McDonald's. They've used packaging or what have you. Um, and they've given that packaging now to somebody else, you know, um, that person drove to McDonald's, perhaps if they went through the drive through and then left. And in order for McDonald's to do business, it caused another, uh, emissions, so to speak. So those difficult scope three emissions is where carbon removal technologies like ours can really help corporations get closer to their goal. Um, and what we want to eventually grow into is a carbon sequestration as a service and make it easy for companies to be able to uh, order pumps. Um, I don't know if we would do it directly from our website, but eventually we'll get to that level and uh, we would be able to provide them a, you know, an approximate deployment date for when the data would be live. A lot of the corporations, what they're doing right now is purchasing carbon credits you know, that are readily available and you know, claiming that as uh, their, um, you know, towards their yearly goal. Um, but right now we're really working on how we could uh, tweak it for uh, ourselves so that they're incentivized to want to purchase our pumps that will make their carbon credits for them. So yes, a company, if they have, for example, um, you know, 18,000 tons of CO2, uh, that are, you know, I don't know, for a cost of goods sold or something like that, it, it, it 
creates 18,000 tons of CO2. Well, the pumps that they would need to buy would be about 8,000 uh, 8, divided by 250. I don't have the number. I'll let you guys do the math. But that's the amount of pumps that they would need to buy. Um, and we would build and deploy them. And um, those pumps would last many years with maintenance. Um, and each year after that, it, after the first 250 tons, the cost would be much less. And those are the costs that we're currently giving with uh, inflation prices. Hopefully it doesn't get any worse. Hopefully it gets better. And that's currently like bleeding edge technology prices as well. We do believe at scale, the prices will come down, but it's not about a, you know racing to the bottom. It's about being able to provide quality carbon removal uh, that is actually uh, doing good uh, for the world. Definitely. Um... I think the the price of a carbon credit will come down, but uh, I wouldn't put my bet on inflation not going up, man. I mean, it always does. <laughs> and we also printed forty percent of the U.S. Uh, dollars in the last couple of years. So that's that's a conversation for a financial podcast. <laughs> but um, it's a factor yeah. when you're in business, and I, not even if you're in, if you live yeah. in the world, it's a factor with the reserve currency uh, being consistently inflated like crazy. But um. Hmm. One of the big concerns people have about rising levels of CO2 in the atmosphere beyond climate change is the cause of the coral bleaching, which is killing all sorts of um, marine species across the world, and that is the increased levels of acidity in the ocean. I was wondering if you knew how increased amounts of phytoplankton might affect this. Is this going to make acidity worse because we're talking about printing more carbon into the ocean? What's the relationship like there? So, yeah, um and you could Google this, uh, since 1950, about 40% of Earth's phytoplankton has disappeared. Um, so there's a lot less phytoplankton, and yet uh, the ocean acidity is still going up. I can't remember the name of the uh, Australian person, um, somebody who advocates, for example, kelp sinking. Um, and he mentioned that if we were to drop 200 parts per million, now, to give you a perspective, right now, we're, right now, Earth is at about 420 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. One part per million is equivalent to uh, 7.8 billion tons of CO2. Yep. He said that if we were to drop 200 parts per uh, million of CO2 into the th down to 3,000 meters depth, that the concentration of uh, CO2 in the deep ocean would uh, increase only about 2%. Because the oceans are vast. I don't think a lot of people take into account how vast they are. Now, one thing to consider uh, in our case is that we deploy far offshore and away from coral reefs. Our pumps are free drifting. Uh, they're not moored. Um, and they're made for the deep ocean. Coral reefs, are uh, a little closer to the sun, or a lot closer to the sunlit zone. So um, we don't think that there's going to be a huge negative effect uh, from having thousands or millions of pumps. Um, but uh, that's something that the scientific community uh, could debate, will debate, um, and we just need more data on our pumps, and that's what we're working on getting this year. Are there any other like? ecological issues associated with like rapidly increasing the, the growth of phytoplankton? Some folks, um, you know, bring up uh, harmful algal blooms as a potential issue. Um, but harmful algal blooms are more prevalent near coast. 
we're out in the open ocean. It's very different environment uh, out here. You know, we can't say for sure whether or not um, the kind of phytoplankton that we would grow would be harmful algal bloom. Um, something that's that's interesting is that if you know the difference between reforestation and afforestation, afforestation is the planting of, you know, it's a monoculture or it's like, you know, the same pine tree for acres and acres and acres. Reforestation is, you know, um, a combination of different plants and trees uh, in that area. We're akin to ocean reforestation where what we're doing is naturally mixing uh, the ocean. We're not, uh, this would, what we're doing you know, a whale would potentially do uh, by swimming up and down uh, the water column, helping to mix and kick back up the nutrients uh, while they're submerging and, and uh, breaching the ocean surface. Um, there's a really cool video called How Whales Change Climate on YouTube. I think your viewers and listeners would love this. Um, it's, it kind of lets you know how important uh, whales are for the ecosystem. And it kind of gives you an idea of what uh, we're essentially doing. And we're accelerating what scientists call the biological carbon pump. And that is the mixing of the deep ocean with the surface to uh, trigger phytoplankton growth. Um, uh, we've had, by the way, we've had um, Dr. Ulf Riebesel and Dr. Andres Oschelis, both of GeoMark, the German Oceanographic Research Institution out in Kiel, Germany, comment on, on what we do. And uh, Ulf Riebesel thinks that you know, the surface of the ocean in terms of uh, ocean acidity may not, uh, will not change, but it's hard to gauge currently with current knowledge uh, whether it would increase vastly in the mid and deep ocean using artificial upwelling. And, you know, our, our pumps are, are like straws, teeny tiny needles in the middle of the ocean. They're quite uh, small when you compare it to the vast, to the vastness of the oceans. And Dr. Andreas Oshley uh, thinks that uh, by and large, and based on where we're going to be deploying the pumps that it will get a largely positive view because we're growing phytoplankton. This happens naturally, like almost immediately, uh, you know, about maybe 16 seconds or 30 seconds after the nutrients are introduced into the sunlit zone, you start to see a tint of green in the ocean. And uh, that is ocean photosynthesis. It really is quite beautiful. Yeah. And bringing life back into a, a dead zone is, is something that's truly beautiful as well. Are you aware of any other organizations or governments that are working on like this upwelling tech at all? I am not. I have seen um, some copycats like pretending and using pictures from our website, um, <laughs> you know, that claiming that they're claiming that they're doing this, but uh, no, um, we are the uh, bleeding edge uh, people working on the engineering, really artificial upwelling. There's a lot of research on it. Uh, it works. The real challenge is, can it be long lasting? Can it be sustaining? Uh, the oceans are, you know, the harshest environment on earth. We're talking 20 meter waves uh, in, a, in a hurricane storm. Um, but uh, the pump has a force limiting uh, component built into it, meaning that if a 20 meter wave should come or anything great, any wave greater than three meters, it's impossible for the pump to go to rise any higher. Um, it'll duck under the waves. And that also makes it so that it could work so that it could be long lasting. That was something that was considered a lot uh, over the years in terms of its engineering. 
um, you know, that it worked both physically and biologically uh, in the ocean. And you just happen to meet this guy who's designed this pump from his from his brain. He came together. It was this one person <laughs> who designed the pump. What's his name again? So Phil Kissel had the idea, um, went out and built a, like a 300-foot pump just to see if he could uh, make this idea work. Um, and it was with his, uh, with Phil Fulham. So it's the Phil, both of them are named Phil. They're both the, uh, the people who, who worked on this, um, and tested it. Um, it's, you know, they've done 300, uh, feet tests. Now we're working on a 400 meter test this, uh, summer out in the Canary Islands. But yeah, they knew that if they could bring cold water from the bottom of the ocean to the surface, they would be able to lower the intensity of hurricanes. They didn't know what they were doing was also bringing up nutrients. And that's where this, you know, odyssey really started in, uh, could this be used to potentially uh, sequester CO2? And uh, the answer is, we believe so. We're going to have confirmation this summer. Um, this is what a lot of uh, corporations, a lot of scientists want to know. Um, and I'm just excited to be here and to be able to help uh, move this technology forward. And yeah, I mean, the way that I got involved, like I shared at the beginning, was I wanted to help. I reached out. I wasn't expecting anything in return. I just wanted to know how I could help. And then I, I gave help. I like, you know, <laughs> it was just a video that I spammed to Elon Musk over and over and over and over <laughs> again. And I don't think he ever watched it. If he did, he ignored it, but, uh, cause it was just such poor production. But, um, anyhow, Phil just thought that the, the effort was worth bringing me on. And I don't think I've disappointed him. We've, we've been doing, we've been, uh, I mean, we got, we got funding for tests. So we're pretty happy about that. Yeah. I'm pretty happy about it too, man. Tell tell Phil Squared I said thanks because we need we all need right. we need y'all. We need everyone, all hands on deck. And uh, before I let you go, I'm wondering if you have any ideas about how other startups or te or tech in the drawdown space can find ways to collaborate together rather than become competitors for these limited carbon credits. Well, I know that uh, artificial upwelling enhances kelp growth and there are a lot of sargassum and kelp projects out there right now uh we're currently focused on deep ocean uh artificial upwelling but i do want to stay in touch with a lot of kelp and sargassum projects out there that are looking to uh grow and enhance the growth of that kelp because uh, artificial upwelling enhances the growth it actually speeds it up by i think 25 to 30 percent and uh, yeah, I'd be happy to uh, be in touch with them. And in terms of uh, right now we need, I mean, this is just the, you know, the first large pump that we're deploying. Will it be a success? I absolutely hope so, but we'll need to iterate. We're gonna learn over time, you know, uh, we're gonna make it much, uh, we're gonna make it stronger and we're gonna find materials and source materials that'll be less expensive. Um, the idea here is to make it a real scalable approach to be able to, uh, you know, contribute to uh, cooling not only the surface of the ocean, but the planet overall. And, um, yeah, I'm just really excited to be part of this project and really happy to be able to share it with you and your audience. 
So let's say that everything goes well this summer with the tests and you get strong validation that this product is or this product is going to work exactly as you think it is. 250, uh, what, what was it? Pounds? Ton, tons, tons of CO2. Tons of CO2. Where do you th- see this com- Where do you see this company in five years time? Oh, um, so we already have um, a few corporations that are just waiting. Uh, we have a few um, investors that also just want to purchase pumps and create their own carbon credits. Sweet. Um, we the the thing is, we want to be absolutely sure that everything is working as designed. Um, you know, we want the validation from the scientists. Uh, where we're where we're testing currently is the Atlantic Ocean. It doesn't have the best biogeochemistry, so the best location really is off of uh, California uh, for deployment, so that it just starts circulating in the North Pacific subtropical gyre. I see this as uh, getting a lot of attention. Um, I do know that uh, we we were recently invited to be on a carbon removal documentary that's in the works that'll be due out late 2023. So you could look out for that. There'll be certainly videos of, of what we're working on in, in California and in the Canary Islands that'll be available then. Um, but I do think that, you know, once we have the methodology down and the engineering down, I think a lot of people are going to want to collaborate and help us iterate, speed up the iteration and uh, look for ways of making it l- less, I want to say less expensive on the, uh, the overall monitoring. I would hope that uh, Iridium costs would come down, but that probably won't happen. There's very few players that have the satellite uplinking. But um, the idea here is really to scale. I mean, if you think about it, I think humanity uh, builds about a hundred and let's just say a hundred million cars a year. If we could industrialize this, we could quite quickly get to the sequest um, to the to the overall uh, CO2 atmosphere. Um, concentrations that we desire. You know, we want to be back to, I I think with the collective effort, we could make it back before uh, 2100, um, you know, to like 290, 280 parts per million. It would be great to get down to that level. And then what's great is that we could, you know, the pumps are recoverable. They could be removed. Um, and yeah, you could scale it back if we need to. Um, but like I said, I don't think we'll reach that point. I think there's going to be a lot of collective efforts because there's a lot of really cool carbon removal projects out there like carbon uh, mineralization is one that I, I like as well. And other ocean CDR projects, particularly kelp, uh, I think is really inspiring. So anything that has to do with the oceans, I absolutely love. And I'm still inspired by land-based solutions. I just, uh, yeah, I just believe in ours and I hope uh, your listeners uh, will uh, reach out. Yeah, well, after today, I, I believe in you, man. This is this is awesome. And there's so much, so much potential, like what you just described. Thank you so much for sharing your potential vision of the future. I, I really appreciated that last bit. Um, any final pieces of advice for young folks who are passionate about helping to build a better world, exactly like what you're doing? Um, my advice uh, would be to, I know that this is a, uh, this isn't, I, I, I want to say, I think the best advice and the best thing that I've ever done was travel. I know this, is, this has, has nothing to do with sustainability. In fact, that you're going to end up using an airplane potentially. Um, but just getting new experiences out there, experiencing and, uh, yourself and other 
Um, cultures, I think, is really important. It just widens your mind a bit, and uh, that's been very helpful for for my own life. So I know that's not sustainability, but in terms of sustainability, you know, if any young person is out there, you know, that wants to help out, I do have a young high school student actually um, who was begging to be on the boat. He wanted to go. He's from Florida. We're in New Mexico. And he was writing me emails saying he wanted to be on the boat where we're deploying the pumps. And uh, we can't do that for uh, insurance reasons, but um, I've created a position for him to study artificial upwelling. He wants to be a future marine biologist. So um, yeah, he's, he's only 15. He's going to some high school in, in Florida. Um, I'm hoping I help him. So like, if you wanna help out, just reach out. Um, we can use all the help we can get. We're not at a stage right now where we're generating large amounts of revenue, but that's what I did essentially is I reached out to Phil and I said, how can I help? You know, my background's in marketing and sales. I did really good in real estate in Peru. You know, how do you need my kind of help? And uh, at the time it's like, I, you know, yeah, I could use your help um, in this and that. And I said, well, I'm going to do what I can to help you. And didn't expect anything in return. I just wanted to further the mission. So if you're inspired either by our project or some other uh, carbon removal project, find a way that you could help. Maybe they don't want your help. I reached out originally to Carbon Engineering and they just wrote back said like, no, thank you, we're, we're fine, you know? And that was that, I never heard back from them. And that was, I, I had, you know, that was about a week after I had just had started researching uh, carbon removal solutions. But uh, yeah, that's, I, I hope that helps. It, it does help. And that high school kid is, is going to grow up and make some big moves. I can tell already, but, uh, Salvador, I appreciate the time man. love what you're doing. Looking forward to watching the progress and seeing how it goes. Thanks. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been, it's been really great. You're welcome. All right, everybody. And we'll see you. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.